0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture.
2: Register to attend PASA's 31st annual conference by January 28th. At Slash Conference.
1: This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. This series is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Gastronomica's Winter 2022 issue is now available online. Today's episode comes to you from a special Gastronomica event featuring part of a public roundtable on the water issue, hosted live at the University of Toronto.
3: I'm Daniel Bender from here at the University of Toronto, and above all, most important for today, a member of the Gastronomica Editorial Collective. Um, I'm joined by colleagues from around the world who have convened here at Victoria College at the University of Toronto um, on a rainy day on the shores of Lake Ontario to talk about our most recent issue of the journal Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies and the issue that we have lovingly called the water issue. It's a special issue for the journal, one that helps us recognize the depth of questions about food cultures and how they link together around our planetary crises, all linked together in that glass of water. We are indeed on a thirsty I want to turn first to my colleague, Irina Mihalake, to help locate us in place.
4: It is my great honor to be able to do a land affirmation for for today to to start us well and start start us right. Uh, So I'm grateful for the opportunity to, to present this affirmation of Indigenous lands as we delve into a panel about water. As a recent immigrant to Turtle Island, I am grateful to be present on these lands and among these waterways, rivers, lakes, creeks, and their many ecosystems. The Gastronomica Editorial Collective chose as our meeting place the University of Toronto, which we acknowledge to be located on the treaty lands and territories of many indigenous nations, past, present, and future. The Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. These lands have been the site of human activity for more than 12,000 years, and are now home of many indigenous Inuit and Metis peoples from across Turtle Island and beyond. As we gather in Toronto today, we acknowledge that we meet within the bounds of the Toronto Purchase Treaty Number 13, agreed upon by the Mississaugas of the Credit River and the British Crown in 1805. Prior to this settler colonial treaty, the Anishinaabe, the Mississaugas of the Credit, and the Haudenosaunee agreed to collectively share and steward the land in the spirit of mutual care through the dish with one spoon wampum. This agreement is about taking only what is required, ensuring that all living things can sustain their lives. Takaronto, as documented by Haudenosaunee performing artist and initiator Ange Loft, Roughly translates from Mohawk to over there is a place of the submerged trees in the water. Before Toronto came to replace Tkaronto in official nomenclature, the word has layers of significance for the indigenous peoples. For the Wendat people, it was believed to mean abundance or a place of plenty. It also signified the place of the fish fence, which is referencing the fishing wares built by indigenous peoples around Fort 45,000 BP. Tkaronto was also known to mean the first meeting place. So reflecting on the political complexities of Tkaronto, Anjloft writes that it was historically a place of bounty, it was a seasonal meeting place, a place for trade and ongoing council. Toronto did a lot of forgetting to become what it is today. All rivers were renamed, requickened, first in French, and then again in the English image, stripping away thousands of years of land-based knowledge. As we gather in this auditorium, some of us might know that beneath us is a creek called Taddle Creek, which was a vein of life within the indigenous waterways networks across Ontario. Taddle Creek was a place of travel, fishing, and gathering for the Mississaugas of the Credit and other nations, and it connected the north of the city with Lake Ontario. Today, it is buried underneath us with its stories, ways of knowing, and relatives. The histories and presence of indigenous nations and communities, and of many others who steward and cared for these lands intersect with waterways, creeks, lakes, plants, fishes, insects, and microbiomes. The knowledge of many indigenous communities, deeply impacted by hundreds of years of settler colonialism, allows us today to benefit from nature, waters, and skies. Yet, the future is uncertain. Lakota water protector Chas Jewett spoke about this crisis as she was protesting at the Standing Rock. She said, water is life, and the water is dying all over the planet. We acknowledge all the ways of knowing and caring for the land, gifted to us by many indigenous communities and nations across the globe, And yet, in Canada today, there are 34 long-term drinking water advisories on reserves, including some that have been in place for more than 25 years. The caretakers of waters and lands continue to be removed from what the United Nations called an essential human right, access to clean and safe drinking water. So we here today and into the future. We have a collective responsibility to the waters of this earth, and it is a wisdom, intelligence, and story work of indigenous communities that must drive us forward. Thank you very much for this opportunity to reflect on where we are today.
3: Let me turn then to Paula Johnson, who joins us virtually from the shores of the Chesapeake Bay in the midst of a storm, a late November hurricane. um, Indeed, Paula, from your own house, you can see the deep water container ships and that was part of your location, where you were, you work in the museum, that helped us as a collective begin to think about food, water, and all of its issues.
5: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
6: Yes, thanks, Dan, and thank you, Irina, for the acknowledgement. Um, As the editor for issue 22.4, the water issue, I'm I'm really happy to be kicking off this, uh, this round table. Um, The original call for papers uh, for this issue grew out of a roundtable at the 2021 Association for the Study of Food and Society virtual meeting, where we were brainstorming about future issues of the journal. And um, I've carried around these dual identities in, in maritime history and food history for many, many years. So I don't remember exactly, but I think I must have piped up about water—the um, global water crisis, uh, water insecurity, the collapse of fisheries, and you know the conund- conundrum: how can something so basic as water be so complex? Um, because of course it is so basic. Um, So when we sent out the CFP last year, we kept it purposely vague to see what water in a food studies context might suggest to authors and really to inspire people working on projects to perhaps think about some aspect of water and food as they were doing their research. Um, Submissions rolled in over the course of the year and thanks to the authors who submitted their, their terrific work, Um, I'm really pleased with the response that we had for issue 22.4. And while the issue isn't 100% devoted to water-related articles, uh, it's somewhere between the percent of water in the human body, which is, I believe, 51% for adult women, and the percent of water on the Earth's surface, which is about 71%. So somewhere in there is our percentage for this issue. Um, The articles are from various parts of the world, uh, from the Amazon, the coast of Peru, the Kanda River in Tokyo, uh, the west coast of Africa, and then in the U.S., New York City, New Mexico, and Arizona. Um, The articles are grouped under headings of changes in the water and drinking water. Um, And explore, for example, some themes like... um, uh, commodification of marine resources and impacts on communities uh, in terms of the economy and culture and health um, environmental change and impacts on on food sources on safety on distribution and on justice um, the lack of water from a historical perspective and the role of innovation and resilience among communities and um policies, policies that prioritize short-term gains over sustainable solutions for health and the environment. So uh, that's the issue. I'll also note something about the cover. Um, I considered many photos. It actually had water in the frame, uh, but ended up selecting an image from the desert uh, that shows fields of green in the distance, uh, which, as we learn in the caption for this image, those fields of green are possible thanks to irrigation. And this image spoke to me as really from a water perspective, it illustrates what's gone wrong with American agriculture in the American West, where irrigation takes, makes places like Yuma County, Arizona, the unlikely capital of leafy vegetable production in the winter months. Um, So that's the, uh, basics of the, um, the issue itself, which I guess will drop very soon. Um, it's available virtually, but um, it'll be in our mailboxes sometime soon, I hope. Um, and then I just want to quickly also add that over the past year, while the uh, call for proposals was active, you know, I became hyper-aware of water issues in the US and around the globe. It's always when you're studying something, you see it everywhere. And it was really kind of a water, water everywhere situation. Um, And, you know, it continued um, to suggest the ongoing relevancies of this topic. And just quickly a sampling from the news the past couple of weeks, just two days ago in the New York Times, Jordan is running out of water, a grim glimpse of the future um, on November 10th you know, which really looks at one of the driest countries in the world and how with rising heat and growing population due to migrations, um, is looking at uh, the Jordan River itself is less than 10% of its historical average. People are putting up with less than 30 hours of uh, water per week um, at home. Um, Bloomberg, November 9th. 2022. Shrunken Mississippi River slows U.S. food exports, when world needs them most. And this, of course, is about grain shipments needed because of shortages and soaring prices um, due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, You know there are similar drought conditions affecting other other rivers: the Colorado, the Rhine, the Danube in Europe, the Yangtze in China, the Parana River in Argentina. All of these are mentioned in this article about the Mississippi. Um, November 5th, from CNN. Wells are running dry in drought-weary Southwest as foreign-owned farms guzzle water to feed cattle overseas. You know, a story about uh, alfalfa growing, very water-intensive in the Southwest of um, the US, um, grown by uh, uh, United Arab Emirates, a company that owns the land to send to the Middle East for cattle, livestock, meanwhile, draining the aquifers in the region. Um, October 25th, civil eats. Um, In the age of mega drought, farmers in the West Sea promise in agave. It's a very cool article about the rise of agave growing uh, because, of course, agave can survive with little or no water and can be used for a potentially lucrative um, market in the world of spirits. Um, Fisheries collapse October 16th, 2022. Billions of snow crabs have disappeared from waters around Alaska, and it's not uh, because of overfishing. Um, This also is the same place where the Bristol Bay Red King crab harvest is closed for a second year in a row. The collapse of these fisheries is, is historic. Um, okay, a couple more. Sorry, <laughs> I just kind of got on the roll. Um, res- uh, September 9th, uh, Jackson, Mississippi, uh, a growing drinking water crisis threatens American cities and towns. We've heard about um, Flint, Michigan, but Jackson, Mississippi, the capital of the state, experienced a week without reliable water and has you know severe um, restrictions for um, uh, boiling. Uh, or um, advice, advisory for uh, people to boil their water um, uh, before drinking it. Um, okay, so I'll stop there because it's it's really quite amazing. Um, and this is only, like I say, in the last six weeks or so. Um, so I will stop there and uh, hope that other people will contribute to this discussion about water and food studies, and um, how we can bring the food studies lens to exploring uh, not only the crises, but the history of uh, the historical roots of these situations. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much, Paula. And and I will just, um, there's a, a number of key words that one might distill from this, notions of privilege, of thirst and drought, experienced both by plants, humans, and other animals. And of course, water as what links us. It's that transportation. It's what we make boundaries out of, but it's also what we make connections out of. Signe, might I point, pass this to you to think about some of those those watery arteries that connect them?
2: Help keep non-profit food radio on the air and get a limited-release HRN t-shirt designed by artist Chema Scandal. When you become an HRN member or renew your existing membership at the $90 level, you'll receive a shirt created exclusively for members as our thank you gift. Don't wait because this limited edition t-shirt is only available until December 31st. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to support HRN at any level. There's more swag and benefits available for any tax-deductible donation. You can even get your company on the HRN airwaves as a perk of our business membership program. Head to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. For 30 years, PASA's conference has served as a springboard for transformative food system change. PASA's 2022 conference features more than 30 virtual and 90 in-person sessions on farming and food systems, covering topics that include building community food webs, keeping seeds to preserve cultural traditions, protecting local watersheds, as well as production methods and business skills for food producers of all levels. Keynote speakers include Soulfire Farms Leah Peniman, author of Farming While Black, Sarah Mock, author of Farm and Other Efforts and Jessica Gordon-Nemhard, author of Collective Courage, A History of African American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice. PASA's virtual pre-conference takes place January 4th through 28th. Register anytime to attend live or get recordings. You can also join PASA in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 10th through 12th for its in-person main conference. Comprehensive COVID safety measures will be in place. Learn more and register At slash conference. That's P A S A slash conference.
7: I was thinking about as Paula was describing those various headlines, uh, the word, how the word sustainable is something that comes up in a lot of these issues, and indeed what Dan was describing. And it's a word that I've been thinking about quite a lot recently because. by way of a little detour, I recently visited a very pretty place in Ireland called Ballymaloo. It's a cookery school some of you may have heard of. It's very famous. Um, it was opened in 1983. Many famous uh, cooks have been there, including Rick Bayless, Diana Kennedy from, uh, Mexico, from these shores. Um, other Ottolengi celebrity chefs have cooked there with Darina Allen, who's, fam- who's famous for her vegetable gardens and... The school is very closely allied with Slow Food, she is the, it's the Irish sort of emissary for the Slow Food chapter or the Irish chapter of Slow Food and the reason I was at, in Ballymaloo, uh, which I wanted to visit for a long time, but I finally found a reason and that's because I am also good friends with a winemaker in South Africa where I live and work and he is no longer a winemaker, but he used to make one of only two certified biodynamic organic wines in South Africa and on a farm which shares many of the same tenets as Malu, He planted the vines himself. They used, uh, of course, as as that incredibly uh, labor-intensive and also paperwork-intensive certification can attest to It's a lot of hard work, including a a fleet of Dexter cattle, which he also had in common with Ballymaloo and ducks uh, in between the vines, anything to avoid using unnecessary chemicals and so on. Anyway, the winemaker had told me that he used to take his local organic biodynamic South African wines to Ballymaloo to guide tastings with the students. And you could see the two places were so similar uh, and beautiful in everything that they celebrated and uh, have been codified, I suppose, by things like slow food and so on. Less so is the story of how the wines get there, which is in big gas-guzzling container ships. Now, why it's important that it's, I'm talking about organic wines is that everyone knows that the mass-produced commodities, inclu- including wine, get shipped in big containers. And if it's cheap wine that sometimes gets bottled elsewhere, it'll, it'll be shipped before it's even bottled to be bottled on the other side. That's not an exercise in the kind of care that is associated both with my wine-might-make-a-friend uh, the the wine is called Elgin Ridge, and the values of Ballymalloo. So there was a narrative missing there, right? So it's a different sort of shipment of wine that goes into um, also an extreme amount of paperwork. I I might add, uh, I have newfound uh, respect for uh, um, the the process of uh, ec- exportation and so on anyway so I just to keep it short I was thinking about if I so I'm now working on a project which is specifically about I suppose drawing attention to the supply chain that uh, is less celebrated uh, the uglier part of those beautiful places that we talk about when we talk about local and and sustainable and in fact I was speaking with my winemaker friend about this very event and thinking about how I would frame it. And I was using that word sustainable and he was getting quite angry and he was saying, "I, I hate it when people use sustainable because sustainable doesn't mean moving forward. Sustainable means staying in the same place, right? So, And he was saying that what he wanted to focus on was something that was more regenerative. Right? That would, was his preferred sort of term. And we, he spoke about some so-called organic French winemakers that would use, I believe the term they use in French winemaking is lutte raisonnée. Um, he originally, and quite amusingly, first used the term raison d'être, which mm-hmm. is quite different. But lutte raisonné" to describe, so if we translate that, it would be a reasonable... Uh, fight or distraction from someone who might be committed to doing uh, or, or an organic practice, but can justify using turning a, a little corner here or using a bit of chemical there, um, something that doesn't quite fit in with that whole process. Anyway, so I thought that uh, if I were to choose an image that uh, would be emblematic of this. What we're talking about here today, it would be of the ship ever forward stuck in the Chesapeake Bay where Paula is um, for the few days. Um, And maybe also the meme that came out after its sister ship ever given finally came unstuck from the Suez Canal in March 2021 when so many of us had been... uh, transfixed, myself included, so much so that I'm now a little bit obsessed with cargo ships. There was a meme of one, I think the Deadpool character or something, saying, no, put the ship back, put the ship back. We need, we need to this kind of crisis porn or whatever. Of course, it's no laughing matter um, when you stop the world's globalization, and it had an enormous impact. Um, so I keep thinking of that image of the ever forward um, evergreen companies sitting in the Chesapeake Bay when now I think about the word sustainable. And I'll just end off finally uh, with a note about South Africa where we had a terrible drought years ago and we were approaching something that they kept threatening uh, with, it was called Day Zero. Uh, we were going there where there would be no water in the taps. And there are many people to return to Dan's, talk about privilege, there are many people who don't have privilege in the first place of having running water. And we were showering in buckets and things like this. Now that is fortunately not our biggest problem. Now our biggest problem is a lack of electricity due to poor governance. But when there's not electricity available and they have to cut off the power for several times a day, the water sanitation plants get affected and so does the drinking water. So that's what I've been thinking about in getting ready for today.
3: I think what you're doing is drawing some really interesting connections between drinkability, taste, and transportation, which ultimately we depend on all of them. We depend on water for all of that. So, And I think that actually food studies, the study of food, which heretofore really thinks about water as an ingredient, but I think what we're doing here is trying to suggest the ways in which this area of inquiry is uniquely positioned to think about water as resource, as transportation, as ingredients. as something we taste, right? Jess, would you like to jump into that? I pass this to Jess Garbo.
8: <laughs> sure. Um, when Dan and, and the other members of the collective and, and Paula most of all brought this concept of the water issue to the fore as the managing editor, I was extremely excited because... I thought of immediately 20 different things that could show up in our inboxes as submissions, which really testifies to the power that Gastronomica has as both an interdisciplinary journal with a very broad readership specializing in many different subject areas and also a journal that facilitates a certain kind of imagination and creativity in the kind of pieces that we can not only read but nurture and ultimately publish. So, of course, as we watched things come in, I was really intrigued by the different regions that were represented, the different manifestations of water. But as someone who tends to think on a very material level, um, and particularly as someone who cooks a lot at home, I kept waiting for the pieces that meditated on what would happen in the home kitchen and the ways in which we would encounter and understand or fail to understand water as a phenomenon of a degree of unpredictability in our everyday lives. Um, And not solely in the waterways that we depend upon, but on the water that we bring into our very own homes and what we do in that very moment of water encounter. Um, So I was sitting in on a lecture this September, uh, the opening public lecture of the Science and Cooking series at Harvard. And um, the scholar Harold McGee is always the first person to open that course with a public lecture. And he did so by way of bringing up several different contributions to an issue of the journal, Physics of Fluids. Now, I cannot imagine a person in this room has necessarily read this issue, but I'll give you the citation if you want it. It's volume 34, published in 2002, titled Kitchen Flows. And included in this issue were articles that addressed, among other things, the Physics of the splashing and washing of raw chicken, engaging with that story of whether or not you need to fear washing chicken for fear that the bacteria from the kitchen, the chicken will, you know, splash up and get all, all over everything, to different emulsion points and, and behaviors of French vinaigrettes, to the quote swelling, softening, and elastocapillary adhesion of cooked pasta, and my favorite, oreology, um, the fracture and flow of milk's favorite cookie. Literally how milk flowed through Oreo cookies and at what points they would become saturated. Um, So now you might ask, what is scientific research coming to? Or you might say, why weren't these submissions directed to Gastronomica? Um, And one thing I would love to see us do in all our issues, but I think there's lots of potential for this in future submissions that relate to water, are specifically pieces that take very very complex scientific processes and make them legible for the broad interdisciplinary audience of food studies. Because if there's anything people who specialize in science in uh, need and would benefit from, it's exposure to the humanist approach to food studies. And if there's anything that the humanists would appreciate, it's a greater deeper understanding of the scientific processes behind what we think of as the cultural manifestations of food. So I'm very excited Perhaps not to see a submission about Oreos, but to see someone talk about the water that flows through their coffee maker and the transformative process that can take place in that moment. What it means to wash or not to wash a piece of produce. Um, these could be submissions that are scholarly, or they could be submissions that take a more creative approach, but they're all equally at home in a place like Gastronomica. And I'll send it to Bob.
5: Thanks, Jess. Um, I think, as some of you know, well, first I want to thank everyone for coming today, and of course, thank my fellow collective members and the U of T for for sponsoring this event. Um, I'm always working in the philosophical register, uh, so from the perhaps the the most material of concerns here in the realm of physics, I'll uh, you know I'll I'll swing it up towards the more abstract. But with with this sort of purpose in mind, I think, as you know, someone who, who spends a lot of time and enjoys, above all, teaching philosophy, um, to think about thought experiments. And as someone who believes that our reality is in great part shaped and constituted by our thinking and by the concepts that we hold individually and collectively, uh, part of the solution to the various crises of water is just going to be the ability to see the world differently, to conceptualize the world differently, and to approach water itself, a seemingly uh, straightforward uh, idea. You know, if we just think of its its molecular compound as, as H2O in its purest form, how could we possibly conceptualize that in a different manner? So we want to take up some thought experiments. The first might be, you know, philosophy begins with the philosopher Thales, who theorized that everything in the known world is 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 composed of water it is, as its most essential component. And then of course philosophy quickly moves on to other things, fire and you know, matter and whatever else uh, you know might be the fashion of the day. But you know, to take a page out of Carolyn Korsmeyer's book, you know, she's the great, you know, philosopher of the sort of history of the hierarchy of taste and how the distal senses of, of hearing and sight take precedence over the more proximal senses like taste and touch. Um, to go along those lines, what would it mean to rethink the history of thought? And, and thinking particularly here of, in my own training in the, in the Western, in Western thinking, what would it mean to rethink the history of thought not with vision, at its core, and all the visual metaphors and metaphors of light that we use to describe our insights and our our light bulb moments of thinking, but to take water as the medium, if you will, or the metaphor for what it means to think, and not in its pure form, of course, but water as we always experience it phenomenally, which is contaminated, uh, intermixed, butting up against those things that are not water, or to even think back to uh, the wonderful land acknowledgement that we had today, to think of water not as something that fills a space, like it would fill this, this glass or a container, but you know, as someone like Yifu Tuan would say, it's, it creates a place, it creates an event, that water itself is the place, water creates shorelines, water creates connections between people, so to, to go back and to, you know, perhaps interrogate the, the, the ways of thinking, the, the prejudices, good and bad in our thinking, and how water might reshape or re- reform them uh, would be a sort of interesting project. Uh, the second would be, you know, and particularly with the, with the crisis aspect of water, what would it mean to think of water as essential, but not essentialist? you know, to to have a non-essentialist conception of what water is, to dispense with the idea of the goal or the ultimate form of water being its, its pure form, and to understand that what water does for us and how we experience water is not in its abstracted molecular form, but always intermingled with other things. Our closest contact with water within our own bodies is indistinguishable from life itself and what it means to be a body. So, This goes along other strains of thought that interest me uh, in terms of how we can think in an anti-essentialist way, how we can think in a a critical mode about the role that water plays and how our treatment of water, in a sense, as a commodity, as a right, uh, all the the various ways that, that we think about it, what it would mean to... Dispose of the essentialist claims that might connect us to them, and then to think of it in more, for lack of a better term, more a fluid sense in, in the way that uh, it binds us together. And the last, of course, came, came from my reading of, of some of the essays in this, in this water issue, particularly the one about the Amazon River and the way that the smell of the river has become for some of its residents an indication of its, of its pollution and its toxicity. And for me, what that, what that really inspired was, was thinking once again in this non-essentialist way of the ethical questions that arise from that and imagining that the starting point for ethics would not be a pure principle or a shared universal but rather something like taste, or in this case, its close ally, smell. What does it mean to, to begin ethics from aesthetics, from being immersed in the experience of having the condition of a shared experience, but beginning with the real moment where our experiences are all going to be vastly different in some way? So what does it mean to, to kind of found our interconnectedness that... The idea that what we all share is, of course, what makes us all also really unique and different in those experiences that we have. And so our interactions with water, it's plenty, it's, 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 it's lack, et cetera, and so on. These are, the, these are our starting points. What does it mean to craft collective action, if you will, uh, from this diversity of starting points? I think that's the real challenge that, that, that water brings to us at this moment.
3: Let me turn to, to to Krishnendu Ray here, because Krishnendu has also been engaging with, the, with, I think, very, very similar kinds of questions of, of water is essential mm. and thinking also about shorelines, but thinking at very similarly kind of engaged ethical questions, but through, these, through these, the lens of, of, of infrastructure, really.
9: Yes, of course. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Um, and uh, sorry I can't be there. Uh, Thank you for hosting us. And to the audience, uh, you folks can see uh, why I enjoy my work with this collective. Uh, Every time we start a conversation, I'm busily taking notes. Uh, So one of the things that has emerged and then kind of uh, set it up is this, uh, and especially if you're a grad student, a lot of the rich work is emerging between infrastructure and culture. And you saw that in the last series of comments. And so what I'm going to uh, spend a couple of minutes talking about is another dimension of it. Uh, one of it is uh, my appalling miseducation uh, about water. Uh, uh, I have now spent half my life in India and a half in the United States. And what contributed uh, to my uh, re-education in this connection between uh, uh, uh Infrastructure and culture, which of course uh, your university is one of the hearts of it in Jeffrey Culture's construction of culinary infrastructure. So I'm going to uh, spend a couple of minutes talking about uh, this: my appalling miseducation and the steps towards my re-education. Uh, so my first thing to note is that the kind of the threat of climate change and the water crisis emerged very dramatically in my conception, partly because I was undereducated uh, and ill-informed. And that book was Mike Davis's late Victorian Holocausts, which came out in the year 2000. And in terms of the capacity, of course, to attend to very large objects, in this case, uh, it was El Nino Southern Oscillator even to understand this thing, the kind of aggregation that had to happen in terms of data and its conception as a hyper object. So it was the year 2000 on reading late Victorian Holocaust that I could begin to make the connection between the, the oceanic world and the social world. Okay, And in this case, uh, uh, specifically was my re-education. And this is my second point was the monsoon system, okay? And because of its long tradition, I have been part of the academy where there was a long history of antagonism towards ecology or an ecological determinism in history. We, I think, overreacted to it in trying to wipe out basically the importance of these large structures. In this case, the second thing was the monsoon system, especially in the Indian Ocean world. A number of you in the audience I know are working on the Indian Ocean world, which is an ocean straddling uh, the tropics. And it is capped by a huge landmass to its north that drives the dynamics of the climate. Okay. And that kind of vector of the late emerging information for me was its related analysis of the catastrophic decline in fish that we eat, where in some most acute realization for me, where our technology of capture far exceeds our technologies and ideologies of managing the commons. That is the central paradox of this Anthropocene. Our capacity to capture, dominate, do violence, okay, to the system far exceeds our capacity to manage the system. And its impacts, of course, on the lives of fish and on people, dependent on small, especially on small scale coastal and estuarine fishing. And this is startling. This is startlingly invisible to someone like me, who comes from a small coastal town on the Bay of Bengal called Balasore. Okay. And its edges home to outcast, lower caste Muslim fisher folk with severe threats. To their sustenance. So, this is where ecology meets sociology, okay, and in some ways meets the miseducation of a system that was so slow, so late to come to terms uh, uh, with this dramatic transformation. And so, um, though I come from a Shudra caste, uh, I, we had appropriated a peculiarly terrestrial loyalties of the upper caste of the Aryabhatta, of the the Northern Indian world, in turning our back to what we considered was the threatening and the polluting sea and its various peoples, okay? And I just lived 10 kilometers from the sea, okay? And for me, the next major transformation in terms of attention was Samantha Subramanian's Following Fish, which came out in 2010, but I read it around 2015 or 2016. This is in some ways water or the sea and the ocean as method. So the third, to close, my third startling realization uh, uh, for me was when I read Nitya Jacob's book called Jal Yatra, A Journey Through India's Water Wisdom, which I read around in 2015. And Mira Subramaniam's The River Runs Again, India's Natural World in Crisis, which also came out in the same year, which dramatically underlined the fallacies of kind of mega-modernist mega-dams, okay, that have in some ways kind of been uh, destructive and delusional in affording dreams of total control. So this dimension, this third lesson, was related to it, was the depth of wisdom and knowledge of traditional methods of harvesting water by in fact not damming it, not stopping it, but by slowing it down to absorb into the earth and charge the aquifers instead of stopping and damming it. And, and I was in Delhi surrounded by the baolis and the kuns and the lakes and the jails, but had mostly ignored this structure because of these I was looking at from the perch of high developmentalist modernism, which I'm astonished now looking back has crumbled so fast in its authority. It has left me breathless for about a decade now before swamping me in this deluge of new knowledge about how to manage water and access to it with equity, justice, and attention to other lives social lives, and, and in some ways, the biosphere. Let me stop.
3: Thank you so much to, to our guests from coming from all around the world um, to, to, to join us today. Thank you for making it time on a Friday. And a very, very special thanks to, to Vic, to Victoria College. Our, our president, Rhonda McEwen, has very kindly taken some time out on her afternoon to join us. And I look forward to seeing you all soon, in our pages, especially
1: join us at gastronomica again in the new year when we'll be talking with authors from our new winter issue 22.4 for more information go to gastronomica.org the gastronomica podcast is powered by simplecast thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe